Well, good morning again, and uh, glad to have you here. We've been studying God's story as it's revealed in Scripture. And we've been studying uh, from beginning to end how he tells a story. From the very beginning that, that God created the heavens of the earth, and really even before that, that God was and God is. And then God created all things. And in the beginning, everything was in perfect harmony, right? And it was good. God rested on the seventh day and, and declared everything to be very good. Then we moved into the second part of the story, though, where we start to understand why things today don't match up with what we read in Genesis 1 and 2. And the answer is found in Genesis 3. God had given Adam and Eve one rule to obey. One rule. It wasn't restrictive at all. They had the whole Garden of Eden, the whole park, in a sense. And they could just not eat from one tree, but the rest was all theirs to care for and to manage and to enjoy. But what do they do? They rebel and they turn against God and they eat of the fruit. And with that, sin enters the world. And everything gets messed up. All of creation and every human being who would live on the earth afterwards, including each one in this room, we, we find ourselves in facing the consequences of sin and in desperate need for something to be done about it. Because the truth is we face death. We face eternal separation from God in hell because of our sin. But thankfully, right away in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, we saw last Sunday that God made a promise. And, and he didn't waste any time. He went looking for Adam and Eve, right? He went looking for them in the garden. He said, where are you? And then what have you done? And after going through hearing from them, he, he lays out punishment and discipline for the serpent. And then he promises in Genesis 3.15, I'm going to put enmity, war, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And you'll bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And it was the first promise, the first promise of hope and of good news that God was going to fix what they had messed up. And it points forward to Jesus. And the rest of Scripture from Genesis 3.15 all the way up to the Gospels is all about God keeping that promise. And we see that promise unveiled in different ways to different people throughout Scripture. We see it with Abraham where God promises to Abraham a, a great name and a great nation and a, a great land. And then we see it with Moses. And with Moses, God says, I'll be your God. You'll be my people. And I'll dwell among you. He promises that. And he promises also in Deuteronomy that if you choose to obey, things will go really well for you. But if you choose to sin, they won't go so well. If you choose to obey, you'll choose to obtain Jesus' joy. But if you choose to sin, you're choosing to suffer. And we still live under that rule of of reality in our, in our lives. But that was a promise God made to Moses. And then to David, he promises a kingdom and a king. And you move forward and God continues to promise all these things to his people. And we find out this morning that the fulfillment of that promise, of all those promises, is one man, Jesus Christ. And, and, and he fulfills it in a way that you would never have dreamt if you would have written the story on your own. And even the Jewish people, when they heard all these promises throughout time to Abraham and to Moses and to David and to others, 
They expected on the day of the Lord, the king would come and he'd reign on David's throne and all the promises to Abraham would be met and the promise to Moses that he would be our God and we would be his people and he would live among us, that all that would happen and there'd be this mighty day of the Lord that's spoken of in scripture and God would come, the Messiah would come, all the enemies would be destroyed and all God's people would live forever in great harmony. And that was the promise and it is a promise and it'll still happen. But what they expected, do you ever, you ever read the Gospels and you wonder, why are the disciples like, they just don't get it, what Jesus is talking about sometimes? Well, they didn't understand that that promise was really kind of in two parts, that Jesus was going to come and he was going to offer restoration to all of his enemies before the great and mighty day of the Lord comes when great judgment will come. And when Jesus comes, he fulfills all these promises. But there's coming a day where he's going to come again and totally fulfill them and consummate the kingdom and take his people to be with him forever. And that's going to be a great day. And we'll get to that in the next couple of weeks. But this morning, we're going to take some time to look at who Jesus is because they would have never expected. And if you were alive in that time, you would have never expected that the promise God had made was that he was going to come himself in the person of Jesus Christ and put on flesh and become a man and live among us. You would have never have expected that. You would have expected a man, somebody, a Messiah to come and save God's people. But I don't know that you would have expected that it would be God himself writing himself into the story. It's pretty amazing. And it's all about Jesus. And this morning we're going to celebrate that fact, that that it's all about Jesus. He's the promise kept in God's story. So let me tell you a little bit about him, and then we'll look at some more things about him, because it's all about him. You know, Jesus was born just over 2,000 years ago in a little town about a quarter of the size of Milford or an eighth of the size of Syracuse. A tiny little town. His dad was a carpenter. Did you know that? For the first 30 years of his life, then, it's likely that Jesus did the same thing and followed in the trade of his dad. Scripture tells us that there was nothing special about his appearance. He was just a regular guy. He was a regular Joe. He carried a lunchbox and a hammer to work. That was Jesus for the first 30 years of his life. Yet his life is the most significant life in the history of the world. This regular Joe from a small town who lived as a carpenter, worked a trade. His life is more significant than any life in the history of the world. Do you know the two most significant events on our calendar revolve around his life at Christmas and at Easter? Furthermore, we, we determine time based on his life. Before Christ and A.D. in the year of our Lord, Adonai, right? We, 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 life, the time as we count it is centered on the life of Jesus Christ. Friends, it's all about Jesus. The reason you're alive and breathing today is because of Jesus. The reason the universe holds together, Colossians tells us, it's Sunday school answer, help me out. The, the answer is... Jesus. That's when I say Sunday school answer. When you're in Sunday school growing up, if you didn't know the answer, if you said Jesus, you had about a 50% chance of being right. (laughs) All of these questions are, I'm I'm giving you the answer ahead of time. So you help me. Okay. The the reason this large church building is out in the middle of cornfields, Jesus, Jesus. The, the reason people went crazy a few weeks ago when the Pope was here, ultimately was Jesus. Now, I don't don't know that I agree with everything the Pope has to say, but ultimately it's pointing back. They're claiming Jesus. It revolves around his life. 
the reason there's such a focus on international politics in the Middle East, why is it? Jesus, it's where he's from. The reason the year today is 2015 and not 5527, Jesus. The reason you haven't been abandoned by God, it's Jesus. The reason you give gifts and receive gifts at Christmas is Jesus. The reason you're here this morning is Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. Do you get it? It's all about him. He is the promise kept. He's the promise kept. And so this morning, I want to explore a few truths from Scripture about who Jesus is. And we're going to look into that this morning. But really, the more important question for you is, who do you say that he is? Who do you say Jesus Christ is? And I'm going to press the issue this morning. Who do you say Jesus Christ is? Not who are you taught, not who did your parents say, not who did Josh say. Who do you say in your heart? Who do you... Who do you believe Jesus Christ to be? Well, I'm going to give you 11 things. We're going to go pretty rapid fire. But here's what the Bible teaches about the promise being kept through Jesus. Number one, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in a virgin named Mary who is engaged to a guy named Joseph. You know that story, right? Joseph and Mary, young couple, teenage couple, by the way. Uh, Mary's maybe 14, 15 years old at the time. And uh, an angel appears to her, and she finds out she's pregnant. But the angel hadn't appeared yet to Joseph, so she tells Joseph, what's Joseph do? A little while later, she tells Joseph, Joseph, he loves her, and he doesn't want to shame her, but he's going to divorce her quietly. I mean, he knows it's not his child. Imagine what her parents would have thought. But all of this, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit in Jesus Matthew 8, 118, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. This is important for you to know because, and what we're going to see here, even on the next one, is that God becomes man. And the Holy Spirit impregnates Mary. It wasn't a man, a total man who became God. It was God who became man. And that brings us to the second piece. Jesus is God incarnate, revealing God's love, compassion, mercy, and goodness. He was God incarnate. I've said this before, but do you ever order carne asada? Like it's got meat, right? Carne? That's the word, incarnate, in meat, in flesh. God became man. The word became flesh. Here's how John says it. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, meaning Jesus, was God. In John 14, 9, Jesus said, Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever's seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? In other words, what Jesus is saying is, if you look at me, you're looking at God. I and the Father are one. Jesus, don't, don't fall for the lie that people say Jesus never claimed to be God because he did many times. It's why he was killed. And in Colossians, all throughout scripture, but here's another reference. In Colossians 1.19, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. In the man Jesus Christ, the fullness of God. Not part God, but 100% God. See, this is the difference between Christianity and other religions. 
Other religions would teach you that a man became God. He was good enough. He got it right. Finally, he became God. Or that you could become a God. That's the lie of Mormonism. That's the lie of many religions. That, that God, God was a man who was good enough and he became God. That's not Christianity. Christianity is God who is perfectly good, came as a missionary into this world in the person of Jesus Christ. He put on flesh. Jesus became a man. He became a missionary to us to live with us and to live like us so that he could be our perfect high priest who knows what we go through and could empathize with us and be our perfect sacrifice. And he took on full humanity. He wasn't just like partially God, like he was some super guy. He lived totally as a human being. Jesus was fully God and he was fully man. 100% of both. But what he does is he veils his deity and he lives fully out of his humanity. And he never pulls out his God card to do any miracles. He lives totally as a man so that he could take our place on the cross. And all of the things that happened through him, all of his miracles, all of his wisdom, all of that came through the power of the Holy Spirit working through him who had no sin. Yet we find out later becomes sin for us on the cross. Something else about Jesus, Jesus loved people. He loved people. But when you read about his life, he was the kindest, most compassionate person who ever lived. Bar none. Think of the kindest person you know. Jesus was kinder, is kinder. Think of the most compassionate person you know. Jesus is more compassionate. Think of the most understanding person you know. Jesus is more understanding. He became a human. He knows what it's like. Imagine the most genuine person you know. Jesus is more genuine. The person who knows you best, Jesus knows you better. The person who loves you most, Jesus loves you more. He does what you and I continually fail to do. He loved people and he was and is the most kind and most compassionate person to ever live and walk the face of the earth. Bar none. He was God in the flesh. Matthew nine thirty six. when he saw the crowds, this is just one example, Jesus had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Have you trusted Jesus Christ? Who do you say he is? Have, have you trusted him and, and believed upon him as Savior? If you have, then he sees you not as evil and wicked and awful, but as veiled in the deity of Jesus Christ. And he sees you as a saint. That's who you were. But in Jesus, this is who you are. loves you with great compassion and great kindness. But his life was more than just the fact that he was a good guy. Jesus had authority, number four, over nature and sickness and evil spirits and death. He had authority. Don't miss that. Don't, don't buy into the, the cheap version of Jesus that was just a nice guy but really had no power or no authority. That just had nice long hair and looked, you know, rosy cheeks and looked really kind. He had authority, right? Matthew eight twenty seven. the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him when he calms the sea? Have you ever tried to do that? 
You ever had a big storm come up? And maybe your kids are scared of the lightning and scared of the thunder. You ever try that next time? Walk out and go, hey, be still. My kids are sleeping. They're scared. My family's scared. Jesus did that. He got out of the boat. He got up from his nap on the boat and he looks up and he says, hey, be still. And that's what they did. It was still, and everybody was still screaming on the boat, right? But, but in a sense, that's what he did. He's like, be still. This is, this is my family. These are my people. They're afraid. Be still. He had authority. Luke 4, and he arose, and he left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her. And he rebuked the fever, Jesus did, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. He had authority over sickness. Wouldn't that be great? Luke 7, 12 through 15, as he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, Jesus did. And he said to her, do not weep. Then he came up and touched the buyer, and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother. That'd be quite a funeral to be at, wouldn't it? Jesus has authority over these things. Why? Because he's God in the flesh. And the Holy Spirit worked through him perfectly, but... Even more than than just the authority over nature, Jesus, number five, had authority to forgive sin. He has authority to forgive sin. He has authority to fix what was messed up in Genesis 3. He has the authority to forgive you and to make you new, to forgive me, to make me clean. Mark chapter 2. Not all of this will be on the screen, but let me read the whole story to you. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so there was no more room, not even at the door. And he, Jesus, was preaching the word to them. So imagine the scene. Jesus is back home in Capernaum, and and people are coming to him, and uh, he's preaching the word from his porch, in a sense, right at the door. And there's just, there's no more room for people. But they keep coming. And so when they could not get near him because of the crowd, well, verse 3, excuse me, I skipped ahead. And and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. guy who couldn't walk, was totally lame. And they're bringing him to Jesus. When they couldn't get near to him, verse 4, because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Put yourself in that scene. You're in a tiny little house, tons of people crammed around, listening to Jesus speak, including many of the religious leaders. And imagine all of a sudden a hole opens up in the ceiling and they start lowering some guy down. You ever ever think, like, what are the people thinking at that moment? What's Jesus thinking at that moment? I'm sure things just probably stopped for a little bit, right? So he got down. And what does Jesus say? He doesn't go, hey, what are you guys doing? Why'd you put a hole in the roof? Are, 
are you idiots? What, what are you thinking? No, he, he says, he looks at the man on the mat. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. Maybe the guy on the mat at first thought, yeah, because we busted up your roof. <laughs> no, your, your sins are forgiven. That's the first thing he says. And look how people respond. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? See, they didn't expect God to write himself into the story to come in the flesh. And yet that's exactly who Jesus was. And they're saying, who, who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Why do you question these things? In your hearts. Which is easier to say to this man, to say to the paralytic that your sins are forgiven, or to say, take up your bed and walk? You ever think of that question? Which one's easier to say? Is it easier to say, you're forgiven or you're healed? Now get up and get out of here. Well, to forgive in the sight of God, that's much harder because you have to be God to forgive. And any of you who've needed to forgive someone, or maybe you need to forgive someone, you know how hard that is. Because to forgive means to sacrifice, and forgive hurts the forgiver. It's hard. What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or take up this mat and walk? But he says... But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins... So that you know that I have the authority to do that, let me say this to him. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And in a certain sense, when Jesus says that, maybe they thought, yeah, well, anybody can just say your sins are forgiven. So it's easier to, it's easy to just do lip service and say, yeah, you're forgiven. Well, let me prove that I really can forgive. Get up and walk. And the man gets up, takes his mat, and walks home. Jesus has the authority to forgive sin. Do you feel like you're, you're too far away, you're, you're too far gone for Jesus to forgive you? Mm, not true. That's a lie. He can forgive you no matter where you are, no matter what you've done, no matter what's been done to you. He can restore you and make you clean and make you new. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. And he still has that authority today. Number six, Jesus lived a sinless and, a, and perfectly, a sinless life, and he perfectly fulfilled the law of God. He perfectly fulfilled the law of God. Don't think I've come to abolish the law, Jesus said, or the law of the, or the prophets. I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all of it's accomplished. He perfectly fulfilled the law of God, Jesus did. The writer of Hebrews says, For we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. But he didn't sin. Yet without sin, he perfectly fulfilled the law. The Ten Commandments, right? You shall have no other gods. I mean, you go through all ten. I, I, I don't know about you, but I break it at one a lot of times because I turn my heart towards things that aren't God and towards things that aren't Jesus. And I strike out halfway through reading verse, the first one. Yet Jesus fulfilled all of them perfectly. Perfectly. And in Galatians, Paul writes, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. He was born under the law so that, well, he says it in verse 5, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. 
Now, what do you think the odds are that Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law? That he perfectly fulfilled every command that God gave? You ever wonder what those odds are? There's a book called, um, called What Are the Odds? And it's, an, it's just kind of a random book. It's an A to Z collection on the odds of everything you hoped or feared could ever happen. You want to hear some of them? For instance, did you know the odds of your being injured by a lightning strike on any given day are 1 in 250 million? But over the course of your lifetime, it's 1 in 9,100. Did you know the odds that the average citizen of Washington, D.C. will get plugged, stabbed, poisoned, or bludgeoned to death in the course of a year are only 1 in 1,600? It's kind of scary, isn't it? Only one in 10 Americans read the Bible daily. One in two eat out somewhere every single day of the week. And one in 20 of those eat at McDonald's. In Sweden, 40 of every 100 people are senior citizens. In Fiji, only one of every 50. Here's one that amazed me a little bit. One in every 24 Americans has a membership in the National Geographic Society. One in 24. We raise our hands. There's probably many of you that do. And there's like, I found out there's like 10 billion copies of that magazine printed every year. So that makes sense, or every month. So what are the odds that Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly? One in what? You ever wonder? Well, before we know that, maybe we should just look at some of the things that were predicted about Jesus. How about just some of the prophecy being fulfilled? Not, not even just him fulfilling the law, but the prophecy. Did you know the Old Testament prophet Micah writing in around 700 B.C. Out of the hundreds and hundreds of cities and the scores and scores of nations on the earth. Do you know he predicted 700 years before Jesus was born that he would be born in Bethlehem? That that would be the birthplace of the Messiah. At about the same time, Isaiah said, did you know that he said that the Messiah would be born of a virgin? That he'd be, in other words, he'd be conceived by the Spirit, not by a man. Or the prophecy made in 1012 BC specified the Messiah's hands and feet would be pierced through, pointing ahead to crucifixion, hundreds of years before the Romans ever even invented it. In Malachi 3:1, penned about 425 BC, specified the Messiah would be a contemporary with the, would be contemporary with the temple in Jerusalem, a temple that was destroyed in 70 AD and has never been rebuilt. It's it's amazing when you start to look at the prophecies surrounding the Messiah, and then you start to compare it to Jesus' life and how he fulfilled all of those things perfectly, and how he fulfilled parts of the law, all of the law ultimately. Perfectly. Well, if you're wondering the odds, a number of years ago, a guy by the name of Peter Stoner and another guy by the name of Robert Newman wrote a book entitled Science Speaks. And the book was based on the science of probability and it vouched for, the, by, the, vouched for by the American Scientific Affiliation. So this isn't something that just somebody just made up. They figured this thing's out. It set out the odds of any one man in all of history fulfilling only eight of the 60 major prophecies and then like 270 or 280 ramifications from those prophecies made about the Messiah. Just eight of them. Any man in all of history fulfilling eight of them. Well, the probability that any one man would do that is one times 10 to the 17th power. You know what that is? That's one with 17 zeros after it. 
Those are some long odds. You're like, that number doesn't mean anything to me. It's so big. Like, I get above about 200, and I lose count. Some of you are like, I got 10 fingers and 10 toes, so 20 is my max. That's all I got. Well, let me try to demonstrate it for you. Do you know, you ever been to Texas? If you've been there, would you agree it's pretty big? You can drive for days and not get across Texas. It's huge. That's why Texas is really not the state, but the nation of Texas. I mean, it's a big place. Well, if you covered all of Texas two feet deep in silver dollars, two feet deep, right? It's up to about your knees in silver dollars. The whole state, it's about 10 times the size of Indiana. And then you put on a blindfold and you got in a helicopter and you flew over the whole state or maybe you just got a blindfold on and started walking for days and you randomly, well, even before this, let's say I took one of those silver dollars and I wrote an X on the back of it and threw it in the pile somewhere. And then you got in your helicopter, you put the blindfold on, and you randomly reached down and picked one up out of the two feet of silver silver dollars all over the state of Texas. You would have a one in 10 to the 17th power of getting the right silver dollar on your first pick. Those are the odds that Jesus fulfilled just eight of them, yet he perfectly did. Things he couldn't control. And he perfectly fulfilled the law. Jesus is the promise kept. That's what I'm trying to tell you. He's the promise kept. He's the one that we're to look for and to look to and to trust in. Well, number seven, he perfectly fulfilled the law, but seven, he willingly, obediently, and sufficiently suffered and died on the cross for our sin. We needed a sacrifice. We needed somebody to pay the penalty for our sin, to to take the punch of God's wrath. And Jesus was that one. Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds were healed. Jesus willingly, obediently, and sufficiently Suffered and died on the cross for my sin. Number eight, Jesus' death was the substitutionary atonement for our sin. In other words, he was my substitute. He was my substitute. So many churches, sadly, are are abandoning this doctrine that Jesus was the penal substitutionary atonement, that he paid the penalty and took my place for sin. But I'm telling you, it's the truth of Scripture, and it's the truth of God's Word, and it's the truth of who Jesus is. For Christ also, 1 Peter 3.18 says, He also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. Do you notice he suffered once for sins? That means if you've trusted him, there's nothing else to add to it. Jesus did it. Jesus paid it all. You can't add anything to it. I don't care if you want to. You can't. It's all on Jesus. But not only did he die on the cross as our substitutionary atonement, verse number nine, Jesus arose from the dead on the third day by which Satan's death and defeat was sealed. His defeat was sealed. Jesus rose from the dead. For though absent in body, I'm present in the spirit, Paul writes. And as if present, I've already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you're assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, You're delivered this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, 
so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And, and all throughout scripture, it talks about hell is a place ultimately prepared for Satan, for his defeat, for his punishment. And those who fail to trust Jesus, if you're not with him, you're against him. And ultimately, you're worshiping the enemy. And you'll endure eternity with him under God's wrath. But Jesus rose from the grave so that you might be saved. Not only this, but then number 10, Jesus returned to his father 40 days later after rising from the grave where he reigns and rules as our advocate. He reigns and rules as your advocate. He intercedes for you before the father. He veils you in his righteousness so that you can stand before a perfect and holy God. He's your advocate. And sometimes you ever wonder, boy, it'd be nice if Jesus would have just stuck around. Just hang out here with us. Wouldn't that be great? I mean, wouldn't that be good? I could just go talk to him and and bring him along when I have a problem. Except Jesus says there's something better in store for us than his physical presence here today. Jesus left his promised presence for us, but in the person of the Holy Spirit. He left his Holy Spirit for us. And did you know that's better than if Jesus was here physically right now? You're like, huh? How's that work? Well, uh, don't take my word for it. Jesus said it. Jesus said this. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. And I agree. He tells the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper won't come to you. In other words, the Holy Spirit won't come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And now each one of us has the Spirit of God. If you've trusted Jesus Christ and become a Christian, God's Holy Spirit is living within you, empowering you to live the life that you could never live on your own. The same Spirit that lived in Jesus, the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, the same Spirit that empowered Jesus to with, uh, withhold himself from giving in to temptation. And it's the same Spirit. And you have him. Loved ones, this is who Jesus is. And this is, the, this is the crux of the story of God. That he made a promise to fix what we messed up. And that promise is kept in Jesus Christ. And the question of your lifetime is who do you say that he is? Who do you say that Jesus is? Is he truly God? Is he truly the promise kept? Is he truly the one who offers restoration and redemption and forgiveness and healing? All that was promised by God? Or is he just a nice guy? You know, C.S. Lewis is famous. I'll botch his quote entirely. But he's famous for saying, don't give me this nonsense that Jesus was just a good teacher or a good man. He can't be that. Either he was God or he was a liar or he was a lunatic. If he's a liar, he claimed to be God. So that means he's a liar. He can't be good. And if you're like, yeah, I agree, he claimed to be God. But if he's not God, then he's a lunatic. Along with somebody else who should be in the asylum. He should be locked up. And you'd be crazy to put your faith and your trust in him. You can't call him a good man. He's either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's God. He left no option for him to simply be a good man or a good teacher. Who do you say that he is? Loved ones, if you give your life to Jesus Christ, if you repent of your sin, which simply means turn. Martin Luther says our life, the life of a Christian, is one of continual repentance, continually turning back to Jesus. If you would turn to him, you'll be saved. 
if you would believe upon him and what he did on the cross, that, that God's promise is kept in Jesus Christ, you would be saved and that promise would be applied to you. Who do you say that he is? I'm going to pray. Uh, we're going to sing. We're going to take communion together. And uh, we'll sing some more and call it a morning. But let's pray. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thank you that he, he is the promise kept. I believe that's part of why he's called the word in John 1, because he's the keeping of your word. He's the keeping of your promise. He is everything you declared he would be and who he is. Jesus, I thank you for dying on the cross for me. I deserve your wrath for my sin. I'm as culpable as Adam and Eve in the garden. I messed it up. I deserve none of your grace, none of your goodness. Yet you delighted to pay that penalty for me, the penalty of death, the penalty of facing God's wrath. And instead you took my sin and you gave me your life. It's an incredible gift that you give. Father, that's why I pray whenever I pray, thank you for Jesus. Because I have no hope apart from him. Father, I pray through your spirit you might uh, challenge the hearts of those who hear my voice now. That if they've never trusted in Jesus, if they've never repented of the sin, today might be the day that they would. Today might be the day that they turn from their way of life and turn to your son. And if not today, then soon. Father, thank you for Jesus. We, all of this is because of him and for him. And we pray all these things through him. Amen.